Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for joining me for another Political Rewind uh, today. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm really glad that you could be here uh, for the show. You know, every now and then, I really love the chance I get to talk just to Greg Bluestein, the AJC political reporter, um, on uh, this show. And, and I'll be very frank, Greg, one of the reasons I love it is I'm much older than you are. But I've said to you before that you approach your job uh, in the way that I used to approach mine when I was uh, doing politics at WSB-TV, which means kind of relentlessly, 24 hours a day if necessary, and with a love for politics that just drives you uh, forward. Uh, so I always think about um, how much I loved covering politics out on the street uh, the way you do now, and I'm really glad you're here today. Well, Bill, that makes the that means the world to me, uh, especially since I grew up watching you on WSB. <laughs> and, and it's great to hear that, and, and that's why it was so hard during the pandemic to not, you know, be at, the, at least at the onset to not be out there as much and and not be at events and rallies and political events and press conferences and all the like that, that you know that we don't like to cover from watching it on on the screen. We like to be there in person. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's get right to it, um, Greg. I, I want to start, if we can, you know, we can talk about David Perdue, Brian Kemp, and all that, but let's start in a different direction, if we uh, can. Um, and, and this really plays into Brian Kemp's uh, campaign for governor down the road. Um, yesterday, Chiquita brooks Lashure, who is the uh, Biden administration official in charge of Medicare and Medicaid, came to Georgia um, but said nothing about the fact that Brian Kemp is still waiting to hear whether the Biden administration will approve his two waivers uh, for health coverage. Number one, he wants a very limited expansion of Medicaid, but it would require a work component. Um, and number two, he wants to take Georgia off the healthcare.gov exchange where people buy insurance and make Georgians go shop with private insurance companies. So, Greg, let's talk about the Medicaid part of this first. Um, what are the what are the upsides and downsides of what Kemp is proposing to do? Yeah, and really quick before we get into that, not only that, but the two didn't even meet. You know, Governor Kemp's office said that he wasn't even invited yes. um, to meet with her um, when she was here. So that that's, that that to me says a lot. You know, that that says that this thing is in sort of in, indefinite limbo. Um, now, the Medicaid expansion part, um, Brian Kemp on the campaign trail back in 2018 talked about a conservative solution to, to not expanding Medicaid completely. And this would be a work requirement, a school requirement, some sort of evidence that, that the, the people who don't qualify for full um, uh, health care coverage now in the federal government, um, you know, would have to prove that they can, um, that they're doing something, you know, something work, something school related, something volunteer related in order to get sort of state coverage from, for, for a limited Medicaid expansion. This would still leave out hundreds of thousands of people, um, about 400,000 people, according to one, one estimate. Um, so it is a partial expansion at best of what the governor calls a conservative solution 
to, to this issue because Georgia is still one of the only about a dozen states around the nation that have not expanded Medicaid fully. And, and many Republican states have, Republican led states have already expanded Medicaid. And, and there are, there's a growing number of Republican lawmakers who say, let's go ahead and do it. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and, and take the federal money, especially with when we see federal legislation that is offering Georgia even more cash infusions in order to uh, to pick up the tab if the states like Georgia do end up expanding Medicaid. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we should point out, of course, that late in his administration, Donald Trump uh, approved these two uh, waivers. Uh, Kemp clearly went after them when Trump was in office, thinking he would get approval from the Trump administration. But the Biden administration said, well, not so fast. Uh, let's put it on hold. And, and of course, this is going to become a major issue in the gubernatorial race, um, Stacey Abrams has, of course, always been promote has always promoted in her campaign for governor last time, uh, and will again, uh, uh, expansion of Medicaid to all in Georgia. You're exactly right. And Bill, what, what's she opening with? It's expanding Medicaid. She's not even talking about voting rights or, or other issues that are also near and dear to her. She's opening with the case to expand Medicaid, uh, and that's because. I think her poll numbers showed the same that the AJC poll numbers and other public polling shows, that, which is a broad majority of Georgians support expanding Medicaid coverage. Um, it's something that um, that, that is still uh, faces staunch opposition among Republican primary voters, which is why you're not seeing Governor Kemp and, and other Republicans in other states, um, uh, you know, take this initiative. But in Georgia, you know, for for a, for a broad electorate, this is a winning issue. And that's the challenge that, that Governor Kemp or Senator Purdue, whoever ends up winning the domination, is when they have to turn their full focus to Stacey Abrams, and she is still out there saying expand Medicaid, opening with that, leading with that on the campaign trail, it's going to be tough. It, you know, it's the same message she gave in 2018. So, um, you know, it's not this, it's not some golden goose type of uh, message that can't be defeated by Republicans who have vilified uh, expanding Medicaid as, as too costly in the long run. But it is something that she is going to continue to focus on on this campaign trail. So, of course, um, we, we know that uh, Democrats have, have said for a long time that Georgia is passing up millions and millions of dollars of federal money by not uh, expanding Medicaid to all who are eligible. Um, that's their uh, argument. Uh, Republicans have countered over the years. The problem is right now uh, the feds would pay most of the, the, the bill for the expansion, was it 90 plus 5% at this point, mm -hmm. Greg? The Republicans say, but down the line, we might get stuck if the feds can't uh, keep it up. So th there are those two different arguments that will unfold uh, in the race ahead. Yeah, we've seen the argument sort of evolve. The Republican argument, uh, you're right, it, it is mostly focused on, on the cost, but also on the concerns about flexibility, um, that, that it'll be harder, they will offer um, Georgians less options. It will it will lock Georgians into programs that 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 are not catered to them. And we've seen the Democratic arguments surrounding Medicaid expansion um, uh, expand as well. You know, it's not just covering about 500,000 people is at the core of it. But Democrats are also casting it as an economic development initiative. You know, this mm -hmm. will this will create jobs in Georgia. This will spur development. And they cast it as a rural issue. This will help save rural hospitals that, as you've talked about on the show, 
are either have either closed in the past five years or on the brink of closure. So they're trying to make that a, a rural development issue as well. Um, but we should also add that the work requirement plays into a uh, an argument that Republicans have made increasingly, especially since uh, the COVID relief uh, money started flowing out of Congress, which is that um, you're disincentivizing people from going to work, which, of course, has been an argument the Republicans have used in terms of federal aid for people uh, for with, with uh, without uh, high enough incomes to be able to afford private insurance uh, and, and uh, uh, dealing with other kinds of government assistance. It makes them not want to work. Yeah, not to be overly reductive, it kind of goes back to the healthcare is a right or a privilege argument. And there are many Republicans who at least see it that, hey, you've got to work for that, for that privilege. You've got, to, you've got to be able to show there's a reason why um, you, you can't be working for that privilege if, if, if you don't have healthcare coverage. And, and again, this is even divisive among Republicans because there are, mm-hmm. there are leaders in the state Senate and the state House who either publicly or many privately are saying they wished um, – Brian Kemp and other and Nathan Deal had settled this debate years ago, and it's something I think that was was a topic of conversation in the in the Kemp um, in the Kemp administration early on. Uh, hey, why don't we just go take this expansion on? Um, but right now, with Senator David Perdue, former Senator Perdue, challenging him, it is a it, it seems like a toxic issue um, for for the governor to to take on. Um, we got to get to a break, but the other quick uh, waiver would deal with pulling Georgia off the healthcare.gov exchange and put Georgians in the hands of private insurers to get their uh, 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 coverage. Um, I'm not the rationale for that is what, Greg? Uh, well, the rationale for that is is having your own state tailored, state run um, system that is more catering to Georgians. Um, and the pushback we're hearing from the administration is why build a new system when we already have a government system that is, that is used in dozens of other states. And secondly, there's not enough time for input from Georgians who have feedback on it. So there's going to be that's delayed until next year where we, he- we hear some more feedback from Georgians. Um, OK, let's do this. We've got to pause. Um, as uh, most listeners know, yesterday and today, we've uh, had a final couple of pledge days uh, before the end of the year asking for you to help us, you know, for you to support us as we do our work at Political Rewind and the other shows you hear on GPB uh, radio. So let's pause for right now. If you support us, thank you so much for your financial contributions. And if you've been waiting to figure out how to do it, here is the way. Greg Bluestein, during the pledge break, Sam Burmistaz told me that one of our Facebook Live listeners upstaged you in the cruelest way possible. You said at the top of the show that you grew up watching me on TV. Uh, this poster said, I'm 64 years old, and I grew up watching me on TV. <laughs> I'm not all that old. All right, Greg, let's get back down to it. Um, let's talk about uh, a story that... Um, your colleague Chris Joyner filed in the paper uh, yesterday. U.S. District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson Tuesday sentenced to George Mann to more than two years in prison for threatening to assassinate House Speaker Nancy Pelosi following the January 6th U.S. Capitol riot. But Greg, one of the reasons this story is worth at least a couple minutes is that she capsulized what so many people are worried about in terms of the toxic political environment, and the violent behavior that has spawned out of our 
uh, partisan differences. Here's what she said. The heated and inflammatory rhetoric that brought the defendant to the district has not subsided. The lie that the election was stolen and illegitimate is still being perpetrated. Indeed, it's being amplified not only on social media, but on mainstream news outlets. And worse, it has become heresy for a member of the former president's party to say otherwise. It needs to be crystal clear it is not patriotism, it is not standing up for America, and it is not justified to descend on the nation's capital at the direction of a disappointed candidate and threaten members of the other party. I don't know how you could say it any more succinctly than that. Exactly. I mean, she she hammered home that this this defendant was a symptom of, of a larger problem. And it's a problem that we've been talking about on this show since around it. Well, since before this time last year, but really it stepped up around this time last year when 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 the former president or then president uh, escalated his attacks on on the foundations of American democracy. And it's something that we'll continue to talk about, unfortunately, um, through the 2022 election, because uh, Donald Trump's lies about election fraud continue to, to shape the discourse uh, in, in American electorate. Um, and we're seeing that with Eva Purdue. We're seeing that with some of the down ticket candidates who, who Trump has endorsed. Uh, and we're seeing that with just the, the overall uh, debate and discourse around election fraud and election reform in the state of Georgia. And so, you know, the, the judge here was kind of navigating this line, wanting to punish, uh, you know, the, this, this, this criminal um, for this violent threat, but also saying that, he, that 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 this defendant was just part of a larger problem to which we have yeah. yet to find a solution. Um, what's particularly interesting about Cleveland Grover Meredith is that um, he's not the kind of, when you just look at his profile, he grew up in Atlanta, he went to the Lovett schools, you know, um, not exactly the environment you think of as somebody coming out of there uh, and turning into a conspiracy uh, nut and and then becoming potentially violent in terms of his efforts to uphold the big lie. And and it just tells us a lot. He, we have learned a little bit about how he slowly became a QAnon advocate over uh, the last few years and how it led him to threaten in a text to his uncle that he was going to put a bullet, as he described it, in Nancy Pelosi's noggin on live television. Um, so th- his story in and of itself is um, really an example of what's happening to the extremists on the right. Yeah, when you say love it, I mean, that is that is the like the, the sort of beating heart of the establishment in Atlanta private schools, right? Love at Westminster. Those are the two elite private schools you think of. And there's been a lot of um, profiles and really good stories written about 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 this person in particular and about how sort of the evidence of someone can get radicalized. You know, we always talk about being radicalized by these foreign insurgencies and things like that. But, you know, this is something this is an example of how you can be radicalized by reading about, you know, far right conspiracy theories that just are in, designed to inflame people and to get them upset. And in this case, um, it could have had a very violent end. And thankfully, it, it didn't. All right, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about a um, couple of stories that you filed in the last few days. One of them uh, was a story in which you uh, describe, uh, uh, in, in at least the headline describes, why David Perdue thinks he can beat Brian Kemp. And among other things, you point to internal polling that the Perdue campaign has done, which shows what? Uh, 
Well, we always have to be careful with internal polling because it's designed to right. raise skepticism, right? So I want to lead off with that. Like, you know, internal polling is released by the candidates for a reason. But in this case, we've got not only David Perdue's internal polling, but also Brian Kemp's internal polling, which, which come to the same general conclusion. And that is, shows how important Donald Trump's endorsement is in this race. And, you know, in, in the David Perdue internal polling, once voters were reminded that Donald Trump endorsed him a few days ago, and he's only been in the race for about 10 days now, right? Um, but once voters were reminded that Donald Trump is going to be out there supporting David Perdue, his lead over Brian Kemp had grown to well into the double digits. I mean, a, a commanding lead um, with very few undecided voters. And even Brian Kemp's poll suggested the same. When voters were informed that Donald Trump was not backing the incumbent governor, um, Brian Kemp's lead over over Purdue shrank to just four points, which in, in a poll like this is pretty much neck and neck. So even the rosiest projections from, from Brian Kemp showed that this is still a toss-up race, which to me kind of says it all about, about where the Republican Party in Georgia is right now. So, um, Greg, uh, so far we know that uh, uh, David Perdue jumped into the race. One reason he's given is because Brian Kemp didn't do enough to assure that the election was not uh, fraudulent, that, that, that uh, Joe Biden didn't win the election by fraud. He's also said he would eliminate the state income tax. But do you expect to hear him roll out a broader agenda at some point fairly soon? And does that matter anymore in the environment in which we're living today, where you're either for Trump or against him on the Republican Party side? It should matter. Um, and to him, I asked him directly about that. And he said, I don't want to relitigate 2020. I want to focus on 2022 and how we could build the Republican Party to be a better and more inclusive and, and broader party. But we haven't heard that from him yet. Right. All we've heard from him so far is he wants to support Buckhead Cityhood, um, which is a major controversy, obviously, in Metro Atlanta and, and really has statewide implications and regional implications. Um, he supports eliminating the state income tax, which is about $14 billion or so worth of revenue without a plan to replace it. Um, and, 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 and he is leading, just as Stacey Abrams is leading with Medicaid expansion, he is leading on false claims of election fraud. He, is, he mm -hmm. filed a lawsuit a few days ago um, that, that revived conspiracy theories that were already tossed out by a, by, by a judge. Uh, he said he would not have certified uh, the state election even though he, is, he would be bound by law as governor to do so. And he told me that he would have called a special session to, in his words, fix write-in absentee ballot issues when there is no evidence of any absentee ballot fraud. And he himself voted by mail in the last election. So, so that is what he's focusing on. We'll see if he actually changes that narrative. But so far, even though he says he wants to talk about 2022 and not go backwards, that is the fear of Republicans, that it will be this sort of uh, re revival, resuscitation of all these false claims that we heard all year and all last year, and that 2022 will just be an extension of all that. On the other side of that contest, uh, Brian Kemp has put himself in a pretty good position. You know, it's interesting to think about the fact that last session, Republican leaders in the legislature and the governor uh, uh, supported this leadership uh, giving uh uh, idea that would allow them to raise during the session unlimited amounts of money uh, if they established PACs to to handle uh, the money. Governor Kemp, <clears throat> excuse me, 
there's no question Governor Kemp thought that establishing that leadership pack would allow him to raise a fortune in his race against Stacey Abrams. Turns out he's going to need that money a little sooner than he expected. That is a great point. I mean, when we were covering that debate, it was more of like this will help him against Abrams in the general election because Stacey Abrams would also be allowed to create one of these leadership committees, but not until she's the nominee. So that gives that gave Governor Kemp basically a year headway. Well, now he'll need it against David Perdue. And we're already seeing the sort of benefits of of this leadership committee for for the governor. Um, He has released his first attack ad just just this week against David Perdue. And it's being funded under a million dollars. You know, this is not a small ad buy uh, that is that is being financed through this this new leadership committee um, where you can give unlimited donations. So so that includes doing the legislative session as well, which is a big red flag for watchdog uh, advocates who are concerned that that contractors and people needing special favors and people who have legislation pending will can just give. Two million bucks <laughs> to get the leadership committee in the middle of all this. Before we get to our final pre- pledge break of the show, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what that commercial, that anti um, uh, Purdue commercial that Campus Launch says. Yeah, it's really fascinating because basically the governor is, is embracing the same anti Purdue attacks that John Ossoff and really Michelle Nunn yeah. embraced in 2020 yeah. and 2014. So it's all about outsourcing jobs to Asia. And this is something, by the way, in 2014, David Perdue embraced. He said, yeah, I'm proud of the fact that I saved corporations millions of dollars by outsourcing jobs. And now it's something he's, he's running away from saying, basically, in, in, in John Ossoff's case, saying that Ossoff was more linked to China than he was. And he, he tried to avoid that sort of history of him working in Asia. So I assume it's only a matter of time before the Kemp campaign uh, uses another ad that was also a, 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 a Democratic ad uh, in, the, in, the, in the Senate race, which accuses him of uh, insider trading as a member of the United States Senate uh, when he uh, knew uh, that uh, the coronavirus was likely to take down the economy. I have no doubt. I think I think we'll be able to say that John Ossoff is an informal advisor to the Purdue campaign. <laughs> so what's fascinating as we go to break is that both sides of this contest, Purdue and Kemp, have really powerful um, uh, uh, mechanisms at work for them in this uh, campaign, which is why it's going to be fascinating to watch. Let's do this. Let's get to our final pledge break of the show. There's a lot more I want to talk to uh, Greg Bluestein about when we come back. Greg Bluestein, uh, you mentioned uh, in the show earlier that uh, David Perdue supports a vote on Buckhead, uh, whether Buckhead should become an independent uh, city or not. Mayor-elect Andre Dickens is already out working hard to try to slow that down. Um, we know that, obviously, he's going to spend an enormous amount of time taking up that issue, trying to prevent it from moving forward. But a couple of points to make. Number one, we have not heard where the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, stands on this. We don't know where the governor, Brian Kemp, uh, stands on this. Um, and we also don't know when the business community may start really getting involved, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, 
Speaker Ralston told me last week that he's going to wait until after the Orange Bowl, which is code word for next year, uh, to, to take a stand on it. And he's seen by Mayor-elect Dickens and others as uh, Mayor-elect Dickens called him like the, the key. It was his phrase. Um, so he could be the person who bottles this all up or at least taps the brakes on, on this plan. Um, Governor Kemp has said repeatedly that he, he knows, he understands why folks think this is a good idea, but he hasn't taken a stand on it yet. Um, and, you know, the business community is revving up. You know, you can already hear the sort of engine starting to purr. Uh, I went to a, a last week, um, the, a, a, a rally, a fundraiser, I should say, that was sponsored by a lot of the advocates to keep a united Atlanta. And that room was full of some of the most powerful CEOs, business leaders, Metro Atlanta Chamber uh, officials and others and lawmakers um, who were promising that in 2022 and in the end of this year, you'll start seeing real benefits of their of their campaign to keep Atlanta uh, united. Um, So this is going to be, you know, normally an election in a legislative session, this something like this might have been the top issue. But given all the other issues that we're going to we're going to about to face in the, in the legislative session, this will be one of the top five. But they'll have some competition. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, we still are waiting to hear whether any legislator who actually represents any part of Buckhead will step up and uh, join the Bill White forces that are pushing uh, so hard, plus the legislators who are, don't represent any part of Buckhead who are pushing this as well, right? Exactly. And in that room um, full of the anti-City uh, of Buckhead forces, it was full of lawmakers who were on that side of keeping Atlanta United. I mean, I, I, I've noted maybe a dozen lawmakers or ten, about 10 lawmakers who were there. Um, pretty much the entire city council was there, um, including many of the newly elected city council officials. Um, so, you know, you, the Atlanta establishment is starting to voice out. And they're powerful. I mean, someone sidled over to me in the middle of, of Andre Dickens' speech and said, this is the room where, that makes things happen. Um, these are the, the movers and shakers. Um, that room is probably worth about $7 billion, <laughs> all told. <laughs> and then it comes to all the personal fortunes. In there. And so and those guys, you know, those guys have power. Okay. Speaking of the business community, you have been on top of the Rivian story for a long, long time now. Is tomorrow going to be the day that uh, Governor Kemp and Rivian executives announced they're going to build their plant out in Rutledge? That's what we're expecting, barring some unforeseen development. And I will say that economic development officials are always nervous about this because not that long ago, um, state officials were pretty confident they got the Volvo plant um, that ended up uh, moving to South Carolina. But in this case, I'm hearing a confidence that I did not hear with the Volvo plant. So uh, it's expected to be announced tomorrow. Um, we've we've covered that um, re- pretty relentlessly because this is a this is not just a run of the mill jobs development. This could be one of Georgia's largest economic development projects in recent history. Uh, we we'll, we're talking about thousands of jobs, billions of dollars in investments, and something like this is important too because it's not just the direct jobs created by by this plant, which is going to be a huge number. It's going to be something could be 8,000 jobs, but it's also the spillover effect. They call it the halo effect of the suppliers. Tens of thousands of, of other jobs could be created by a plant like this and well-paying jobs that could transform that area for better and for worse, right? It's going to, it's going to take the sort of uh, rural, sleepier communities uh, and turn it into a, into a more 
um, uh, green tech hub, really. Um, so there's lots of changes that were coming, and there's lots of folks in that region of Georgia who are concerned about that. Um, but it is also going to sort of seal Georgia's reputation as a growing green energy hub. Yeah, I, a lot of what you just said uh, we can unpack a little bit of. Number one, uh, Georgia has failed to attract any other auto assembly plant since Kia, which is down in West Point, And that was decades ago at this point, right, Greg? 2006. Um, the other th- yeah. So um, it, it, the other thing worth mentioning here is I'm curious, where will they do this announcement? Given that there is opposition out in Rutledge, and you can imagine that people who don't want to see their community change would be there with uh, posters and protests. Where do they do this announcement, assuming it's going to take place? Yeah, they'll, they'll want to do it in the Capitol. Uh, and not, not necessarily yeah. because they're worried about that opposition. It's more of they want to make a big splash in the metro and the media market. And it sure is a lot easier to get all the TV cameras there uh, within absolutely. the state capitol. Okay. Well, we're going to watch that unfold. By the way, I think there are an awful lot of people. I certainly was one of them. I had no idea what Rivian manufactured. I have now learned that they manufacture uh, uh, electric uh, vehicles, electric trucks is their real uh, uh, big piece of the business, their business, right, Greg? Yeah. And, you know, when you say that you call them the darling of the electric vehicle industry, that's an understatement. I mean, this, this is a company that's valued at about $100 billion by Wall Street. That makes its market valuation higher than Ford and General Motors. So this is this is not some uh, mom and pop shop here. This is a major company that is setting roots, that plans to set roots in Georgia. Okay, and and to, to tie this back into the campaign that we've talked about, this is a big feather in the cap for Governor Kemp, assuming it all comes together uh, tomorrow. Yeah, and I'll have a story about that actually within <laughs> very shortly that, that my editor is about okay. to. Uh, but no, this, <laughs> of course this, this is will. a this is a welcome change of pace for a governor who, yeah, who's been in this epic squeeze we've been talking about between Stacey Abrams on one side. David Perdue and the other, this gives him a, a chance to change the conversation. And that internal poll we were talking about earlier, Bill, that showed, um, you know, this neck and neck race once Donald Trump's endorsement is factored in. It also showed that when it came to the economy, Governor Kemp's uh, favorability ratings was, the, was, was among the highest. Uh, he, he performed very well when, when voters were asked how they feel about his performance with the economy. So expect him to lean into not just this, but every economic development announcement between now and November yeah. 2022. Um, it also plays into the fact that uh, Governor Kemp has uh, boasted uh, that he kept the economy of Georgia thriving even through the pandemic uh, by being cautious about the kinds of uh, mitigation uh, efforts that he allowed and didn't allow to be put in place in, in the state. And of course, as we know, like he took a lot of heat for that, you know, from from folks like me and you and also from Donald Trump. I mean, he was facing fire from Democrats and Republicans. Donald Trump even used the press conference to, to, to you know, blast to assail um, Governor Kemp for, for reopening parts of the economy before many other states did. And now the governor says that's a testament to his to his economic approach. And that will be that'll be a fixture on the campaign trail as well. Yeah. Um, how interesting. Uh, uh, the former president attacking Brian Kemp. Only the beginning back then <laughs> of what was to come. Greg, I want to spend a few minutes. Yeah. If we, I really want to spend a few minutes talking about this uh, book uh, that you've written and that will, it won't be published until March, right? But Yes. 
Okay, so, so uh, it's it's uh, called Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. We've mentioned it on the show, of course, uh, before. But I, I want to, I'd just like to talk about it with you. We'll do more on it once the book is, is formally published. But I really felt honored that um, I got a chance to read the book in, a, uh, in the last couple of weeks and to have conversations with your editor, Rick Cott, at, at Penguin, right? Um, mm-hmm. He's very excited about this book. And, uh, and after I read it, I thought it was such a wonderful look at not just the 2020 election, but you go back into Georgia political history. You go back to the days of Roy Barnes and before and talk about how the state's gone through a couple of transformations. So um, I was really glad I got a chance to read the book and appreciate the fact that you let me do that. Um, What's this process been like for you? How did you approach this uh, book? You did hundreds of new interviews for it beyond the reporting you'd done for the paper, right? Yeah, no, that means the world to me. And yeah, um, so I started approaching it probably around this time last year, um, when, um, when, when a couple folks just reached out to me and said, Hey, you, you really might have a book here, whether or not the runoffs go democratic or Republican, just talking about writing about Georgia's transformation. And I had no idea what I was getting into because I'm, I'm a deadline guy. I'm used to writing a lot. Um, but I've never had to take on a project. I mean, for me, writing, working on a story for a couple of days is a long time, let alone a couple of weeks, but I've never had a project that, that lasted seven or eight months like this. Um, I think I finished, I put the final touches on it maybe in late September and I've been tweaked since then. Um, but it was really fun. It was surprisingly fun, even though I was working on it nights and weekends a lot. <laughs> it was it was fun to revisit um, some of these these past stories that either I was involved in covering or, you know, were way before my time. Um, but re-interviewing um, people, I had so much great cooperation. Um, some folks didn't want to go on the record, but provided me fantastic background. Some people just offer tips. I would do interviews for you know hours with some folks, and maybe only a line got in the story. Um, and others, I maybe had a five-minute interview, and an entire section comes from that. But still, um, it was it was fun going through this process. And basically, I I wrote a 90-page book proposal um, in, in December of last year, and um, it, it sort of laid out how I wanted to organize the book. And part of that meant you had to go back in the 2018 election. You had to go back into 2002. You had to go talk about some of the personalities and figures that we in Georgia know, but some of our readers, you know, elsewhere might not be as familiar with. Yeah, I think that's right. You open the book with, uh, you're behind the scenes. You're in the suite with the David Perdue people who are watching uh, intently in November, whether, I think it's November, not not the runoff, about Mm -hmm. whether he is going to be able to win without a runoff against uh, John Ossoff and the growing disappointment as they realize it's not going to happen. And of course, that led to the transformation of the Georgia Senate uh, uh, to uh, to the U.S. senators in Georgia being both Democrats. But it also reminded me, because you do go back to an earlier transition period, I remember the night, election night, uh, when we, we became clear as we were watching the returns for the governor's race between Sonny Perdue and Roy Barnes come in, how shocking it was that Roy Barnes was going to be the first Democratic governor to lose office to a Republican in well over a century. It's all part of that same history. 
You're right. And I'll never forget that because I was a junior or sophomore at UGA and the Associated Press said, hey, you know, we don't think this guy will win. But do you want to go come cover and string comments from us from Sunny Purdue's election party? So, of course, I was like, I'm all in. I drove down to Atlanta and <laughs> remember being on the line with the legendary Dick Pettis and saying, Dick, this is actually going to happen. <laughs> you know, Sunny Purdue's going to yeah. win. And he had to uh, probably completely revise the story because everyone thought that Roy Barnes with the 19 to 1 fundraising advantage would sweep this thing. And, and of course, that, excuse me, began the transformation from an all-democratic Georgia uh, to a Republican Georgia. And it's only now, as you uh, report on what happened in 2020, that we see at least some um, movement back toward uh, Democrats, the U.S. Senate, uh, as well as Biden winning the White House. So anyhow, it's your book is exciting, and we'll have a chance to talk about it more. But because our listeners have heard um, our conversations briefly about how it was coming along, I wanted to get a chance to uh, talk about it today. So we're out of time. Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for uh, being here today. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. And as we leave you today and send you back to our pledge team, I just want to remind you to please take care Stay healthy. Go get a booster shot if you don't have one yet. They say Omicron is coming at us fast. We'll be back tomorrow with another show.